folks, my name is Drew Ray and this is Disastercast, a podcast about scary things and how to stop them happening. The scary things we'll be talking about today are level crossing accidents. Level crossings are a simple situation repeated throughout the world and they illustrate a number of really important safety concepts. They involve human factors such as situational awareness, impatience and non-compliance, technical factors such as dependability trade-offs and a lack of a perfect fail-safe state, management factors such as the interface between multiple different safety management systems and interaction between design and operations, and social factors such as the prioritisation of risk reduction. Let's start with a quick refresher of exactly what a level crossing is. The basic problem is that train tracks and roads intersect. The intersection can be fixed by grade separation, sending the cars under the tracks or the trains under the road. Otherwise, trains and cars are going to have to share the same space, so they need to be separated by time. We can't rely on the cars and the trains to keep themselves separate. The stopping distance of a train is typically longer than the distance that the train can see ahead. And at many crossings, a road vehicle can't see the train early enough to get across in time, between when the train is visible and when it hits the crossing. Broadly speaking then, there are two different forms of protection available. We can interlock the signals, or we can block the intersection for a defined period of time before the train arrives. These are both types of active protection. An interlock works by making sure that no train can receive a green signal onto the block containing the level crossing, unless the gates to the cars are closed. Because this leaves the intersection blocked for a long period of time, most crossings use a timed system instead. As the train passes a strike-in point, a signal is sent to close the barrier. This signal is typically adjusted according to the speed of the train, so that the barrier always stays closed a set amount of time before the train arrives. Both options have risks. Interlocking tends to leave the intersection blocked for a longer period of time, and it takes around 30 seconds without a train before road users start getting impatient. They may even assume that the equipment's broken and proceed across the crossing. On the other hand, if you use a strike-in system to shorten the blocked interval as much as possible, you risk making it too short, particularly if the traffic gets stuck or is particularly slow to clear the crossing. If we aren't going to put either form of active protection in place, then it becomes the responsibility of the road user to check if there's a train coming. Depending on the crossing, this can require looking, stopping, or even phoning the signaller to check that the line is clear. Now, at face value, level crossings might seem to be pretty dangerous, and they attract a lot of media attention when an accident happens. But the importance of fixing them is a matter of debate. As a road safety issue, Level crossings are not very important, but as a rail safety issue, level crossings account for a large proportion of all fatalities. In Australia, for example, less than 1% of road fatalities involve level crossings, whilst those same deaths make up over two-thirds of all rail-related fatalities. The UK has about a quarter of the number of total level crossing deaths, but once you exclude suicide and trespass, they account for about half of all rail fatalities. One of the reasons rail operators take level crossing improvements so seriously 
is that it isn't just pedestrians and road users who might get hurt. Level crossing accidents kill a significant number of train passengers as well. Four accidents that give a good feel for the type of thing that can happen are Hickson, Lockington, Kerrang, and Langweddingen. The Hickson accident happened in 1968, when automatic level crossings were a relatively new invention. A road transporter was being used to relocate a 120-ton transformer. The trailer was massive. It was 150 feet long, with a crew of five and a tractor at each end. It was escorted by two police cars. So we're talking about something that's big and it's slow. A previous trailer of the same type had actually become stuck on a level crossing. So they slowed down from their usually rapid pace of a whole four miles an hour, down to a more sedentary two miles an hour to cross the railway. The trailer was most of the way across when an express train hit the strike in treadles a thousand yards away. The barriers dropped, leaving the trailer 24 seconds to clear the crossing. The rear driver of the trailer did his very best. He accelerated, deliberately putting himself into harm's way. And the driver of the train applied the emergency brakes as soon as the trailer came into view at a distance of about 400 yards. But neither action was it enough. The most they could do was make sure that the train hit the rear of the trailer rather than the solid bulk of the 120-ton transformer. The Hickson collision illustrates what's known as the slow-moving vehicle problem. Level-crossing designs make lots of assumptions, and one of them is the amount of time it takes for a vehicle to leave the crossing. If this assumption gets broken, either because of the vehicle or the situation, then a fixed time between the strike-in and crossing is not appropriate. The rail operator in this case was aware of the problem, and there was a telephone at the crossing to allow slow vehicles to phone the signaller. But the sign telling them to do this was manifestly inadequate. It wasn't noticed by anyone involved in the transporter crossing. And the road operator doesn't appear to have fully grasped the hazard. They had become aware that there was some sort of problem. This was when one of their trailers got stuck on a crossing a year beforehand. That's when they found out that there was no interlocking or physical way to stop the oncoming train. In that incident, the trailer revved the engine and made a narrow and lucky escape. Terse letters were exchanged between the transport company and the railway. But these left the transporters well aware of the hazard of becoming stuck on the crossing, but insufficiently clued into the hazard of moving too slowly, and with no idea how to mitigate that hazard anyway. The official report describes the railway letter as remarkable for its arrogance and lack of insight, and suggests that it was most unfortunate that the writer did not point out the hazard to slowly moving vehicles. Now, for non-British listeners, I should point out that most unfortunate is a kind of polite code used in the UK, instead of the Australian or American equivalent of bloody stupid or negligent. To put it another way, the railway was faced with a hazard that they couldn't mitigate themselves, so they passed it on to the road users. So far, that's appropriate. But instead of carefully explaining the hazard at every opportunity, they just criticised the road users for what they saw as bad behaviour. The Ministry of Transport who arranged the road route and the transport company who carried it out weren't exactly blameless either. For their part, they were presenting a hazard to the railway without making sure that they fully understood what that hazard was 
or how to control it. Second accident to talk about is the Lockington derailment. This happened in 1986. A train struck a Ford Escort van and derailed, killing nine people. The level crossing in this case was an automatic open crossing. It had flashing lights, but no actual barriers or half-barriers. And the most likely explanation for the accident is that the driver of the van simply didn't notice the flashing lights. At the inquiry, though, there was a lot of evidence presented about the unreliability of the level crossing. In particular, there were a number of occasions when the lights had been active for long periods of time. In one case, three hours, with no train evident. There were also lots of anecdotes about wrong side failures, trains crossing without the lights showing properly. The inquiry ended up deciding that these reports were mistaken. But it did point out the problem that level crossings are only safe if people trust them. If drivers see a light and totally believe that a train will come before they have a chance to make it across the crossing, then they're going to look at the light and stop. If they think there's a good chance that it will be a false alarm, or that there will be a long time before the train, then they're much more likely to ignore the warning. The length of the warning time has been repeatedly shown to be one of the most significant variables in how often motorists violate the crossing signals. Drivers don't often cross when there's a short wait, 20 seconds or less, between the signal and the train. But one study, for example, showed a 10 to 15% increase in the chance of a driver violating for every extra 10 seconds beyond the initial 20 seconds. The perceived reliability of the signals also makes a difference. One experiment suggested that drivers are more likely to stop at a railway crossing if a normal amber-green-red traffic light is used instead, just because people are used to those signals being reliable and trusting them. The severity of the Lockington accident was unexpected. Most of the time when a train hits a vehicle, the train gets away unscathed. At Lockington, it was the geometry of the collision between the train's wheels and the van's axle that led to a derailment, and a steep bank next to the track that led to the deaths and injuries. But sometimes it's just the case that the road vehicle is so big that it's going to cause damage. In Kerrang in 2006, an articulated truck hit a train instead of the other way round, and the truck came off best. The investigation report is mainly speculative about the causes, because the driver didn't cooperate. He was later prosecuted and acquitted. A 2008 study in the Journal of Accident Analysis and Prevention interviewed train drivers and heavy goods drivers about level crossing behaviour. The rural train drivers reported that truck drivers had difficulty judging train speeds and distances, and also that they often sped up to try to beat the train to avoid being delayed. Specific trucking companies were singled out, suggesting that time pressure might have a role to play rather than simple impatience. Now, for UK listeners, in the UK we're used to trains just taking a few seconds to go past. In Australia and the US, we're sometimes talking about 60 carriage trains that just go on and on and on. So you can see the incentive for ducking past before the train comes, so that you don't get stopped for a long period of time at the crossing. Metropolitan train drivers, on the other hand, reported that truck drivers had a poor awareness of overhang, often leaving the rear of the truck across the tracks. And both the Metropolitan and the Rural train drivers thought that dangerous truck driver behaviour 
was both frequent and willful. When the truck drivers were asked the same questions, they agreed that their fellow drivers often did dangerous things. Their explanations, though, were revealing and a bit different. There was a clear pattern of what I call risk-justified decision-making. They used familiarity with routes and crossings as an explanation for why it was sometimes safe to take an unsafe action. This is the old, I wasn't really doing something unsafe, I was just taking a calculated risk. These two different viewpoints, the train drivers and the truck drivers, are actually quite compatible. The train driver sees a truck cross ahead with barely enough room to spare and says to themselves, that was a near miss. The truck driver must have underestimated how fast I was going. The truck driver meanwhile says to themselves, I knew I had just about enough time and I was right. The truck driver may indeed be right, but the problem with narrow risk margins is a lack of resilience. When circumstances are different, or there's a train at an unexpected time or the driver's judgment of distance is slightly impaired, just enough time becomes not quite enough. In fairness to the truck drivers, they also raised a number of valid concerns about the design of level crossings. Despite the fact that big vehicles are more dangerous to trains than little cars, level crossings are not always designed with big vehicles in mind. It takes a lot of time to slow down and accelerate a truck, just as it does with a train. If it isn't easy to see the state of the crossing early, then the truck has to either slow down every time anyway, or take one of those calculated risks that they won't need to slow down. If there aren't good enough visual cues in a built-up area, it's hard for a truck driver also to judge if they have enough space on the far side of a crossing. The Kerrang case also raised important questions about level crossing prioritisation. As an overall cause of death, level crossings are not that dangerous. It would be nice if we could simply remove them all, but society simply doesn't want to pay for that to happen. We don't even want to pay to install boom gates at every crossing, and certainly not all at once. A paper called Booms Go Bust at the Level Crossing 2012 conference points out that even if we could do this, there are plenty of road intersections where boom gates would make more sense than at some seldom-used high-visibility level crossings. A paper about German crossings presented at the same conference suggested that installing half barriers doesn't even necessarily change the rate of accidents. There are some statistical problems with the way they reached that conclusion. And I don't think the conclusion is necessarily right, but it does illustrate the difficulty in making those decisions. Sometimes we need to decide which level crossings are next in line to get improved, either by being closed or with changes to the layout and warning systems. And there's a delicate balance between trying to predict which level crossings are most dangerous and listening to what the public tells you about them. You won't be surprised to hear that both Lockington and Kerrang now have state-of-the-art protection. I doubt you'll be surprised either that the moment this protection was installed, local residents were asking why they hadn't put in, been put in place before the crash. The unpalatable answer is that we've got limited funding and imperfect methods of working out the perfect place to spend it. As for me, I'm just glad we don't have enough data to get great at estimating level crossing risk. That data comes at too high a price.
The worst ever level crossing accident happened in 1967 at a village called Langwedingen in what was then East Germany. A level crossing barrier got stuck, it failed to close fully, and so the attendant came out and tried to open it again to clear the problem. A full petrol truck, seeing the gate open again, thought it was now safe to cross and moved out onto the crossing. It was struck by a double-decker passenger train. Steam from the locomotive and heat from the burning fuel created a vapour cloud, and the subsequent explosion destroyed the train and the nearby train station. There were 94 deaths. The final accident to talk about today happened at a town called Fox River Grove in 1995. A highway and a railway ran parallel to each other, and there were two side roads crossing both the highway and the railway. When the railway was widened in 1989, traffic lights were added to the road junction. This created the possible hazard of road vehicles queuing across the railway. Part of the mitigation was to synchronise the level crossing and the traffic lights. Whenever a train was approaching, the traffic lights would be preempted to make sure there were no cars stopped on the crossing. Vehicles still weren't supposed to stop on the railway, but if for some reason they did, 30 seconds before the train arrived, the railway would send a signal to the traffic lights. Within 12 seconds, the cars in front of the crossing would get a green signal and be able to move away. Unfortunately, having put this mitigation in place, that was pretty much the end of coordination between the road and rail authorities. In 1994, the traffic light controller was changed to include a more pedestrian-friendly sequence. This decision was intended to make the intersection safer, but it was made in ignorance of the rail preemption timing. Now it could take up to 21 seconds after the rail signal before the traffic got their green light. Meanwhile, the rail operator recalibrated the level crossing predictor from 30 seconds to 25 seconds. So-called constant time predictors aren't perfect, so a 25 second setting really only guaranteed 20 seconds of warning. In the worst case, the lights received a warning 20 seconds before the train and turned green 21 seconds later. Local residents started reporting the problem. Rail maintainers checked the level crossing and found that it was reliably providing the statutory 20 seconds of warning time. Road maintainers checked the traffic lights and found that they were perfectly implementing the programmed sequences. All this, of course, wouldn't have been a problem if road users never queued across the crossing. Whether because of inadequate signage, unclear layout or unpredictable traffic flow, queue the road users did. On the morning of October 25, the local high school bus had a replacement driver. The regular driver, aware that there wasn't enough space for the bus between the traffic lights and the railway, always stopped before the level crossing to wait for the lights to turn green. The replacement driver paused before the tracks, carefully checked that the crossing signals were clear and there were no trains coming, then proceeded across. The last few feet of the bus overhung the railway line. And a train came. What I find really scary about Fox River Grove is that all three organisations involved, the railway, the transit authority and the bus company, had strong safety programs. They had all independently identified this particular hazard and they'd all done something about it. 
All of their protections were brittle, though. There was no resilience. When changes were made to the crossing predictor timing, when the lights were reprogrammed, when the regular bus driver wasn't available, the risk mitigation fell apart. That's it for this episode of DisasterCast. Check out the website at disastercast.co.uk for transcripts and resources for each episode. I also blog regularly now at dependablesos.org. If any Australian listeners want to catch up, I'll be heading down under to Canberra from 7th to 11th April to teach a course on system safety engineering and management. Places are still available and I'll put a link on the disastercast.co.uk website. Keep safe. Keep safe.